Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Matthew Pearl will join us to discuss the technologists. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the advent of technological advances are often taken for granted, but in looking at the history of the Ford of America's great technological institutions often tells a very different story. In his new novel, The Technologists, Matthew Pearl, the New York Times bestselling author of The Dante Club and The Poe's Shadow, explores the rise of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the context of a remarkable work of historical fiction, and he joins us today to discuss uh, his book. Uh, Mr. Pearl, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks so much for having me. It's certainly our pleasure. Really a great book. I've written here a novel called The Technologists, in which you sort of look at the history of MIT in a historical context, kind of a, a mystery. I'm curious, how did you uh, come about being interested in this subject and taking this approach? Well, I live in Cambridge, and I actually don't have any affiliation with MIT. I, I didn't attend there, and um, really had only been uh, on, the, on the campus uh, a couple times in my lives in my life, but it held this fascination for me like it does for so many people because we're not part of it because it seems like this exclusive and brilliant and strange and exotic planet of its own uh, so one day for whatever reason the idea just popped into my head of, of thinking about a story revolving around the very first class at MIT and, and in a way it allowed me to become part of that world in a very different time since I'm not part of that world today. So uh, how much of the story is really uh, trying to stick with that history, or how many liberties really did you Well, it's, it's, as historical fiction, it's certainly a combination of history and my own uh, imagination. Uh, but in terms of the actual fundamental material, which is that founding of MIT in those first couple of years, I worked very intensively to try to make everything in it reflect the actual history and be as authentic as possible. For example, the founder, William Barton Rogers, uh, plays a role in this. He's a character in my novel. Um, so I, I researched everything about him, his background, uh, his, his whole life before he got to MIT, what happened when he decided to try to start a college in Boston. And as I went further into the research, I was just fascinated by how controversial and problematic uh, the idea was to start a, a, a college that was geared toward teaching not just science, but uh, practical science, as they would have called it, technology. Uh, and 
the fears that surrounded that. And so to that, I added my own fictional element, which is a, a story uh, uh, sort of attached to the founding of MIT that as the first group of students prepare to graduate in 1868, a series of large-scale technological disasters start happening around Boston that draw the characters in to the, the outside world, the world that is suspicious of technology and of MIT, and gives them the opportunity to prove that, that the skill set, which is considered very uh, unusual and dangerous, that they have can actually help, and in this case can save lives. Was it somewhat surprising that even in a city like Boston, which even at that time was quite you know, metropolitan, that technology was viewed upon with quite a bit of suspicion? Well, even the word technology was something that would have thrown people off. And it's interesting to think that Rogers and his colleagues decided to make that the focal word of the college because it was a word that most people would not have known what it meant. They wouldn't have known how to, how to pronounce it or how to spell it. So, so in itself, the, the very idea of the college was something that, that drew attention and suspicion. It was also in contrast to, to how science was being taught at that time in other institutions of higher learning. And, and first of all, that was very rare that it would be taught in any substantial way at all. But at a place like Harvard, there was a science department, there was a science professor named Louis Agassiz, and what science was really about there was preservation. It was about classification. These are the different animals and these are the different plants. Uh, so the idea that you would be teaching in a laboratory, for example, just that alone was groundbreaking and, again, was a threat to the establishment. MIT actually had the first physics laboratory in the country, it, not just at any college, but anywhere. So this was really a, a new set of ideas and goals and ambitions for a, a college, and it, it changed the whole landscape. William Barton Rogers, did he um, come up with this idea by himself, or was it through discussions with other uh, colleagues that they decided to form the Institute? It was an idea he had had for a while. He came from a scientific family, and he had taught us at a few other places. Uh, importantly, he had been at University of Virginia, because the University of Virginia was its own sort of oddball creation by Thomas Jefferson, uh, even though it wasn't focusing on science. I think it gave Rogers a, a certain ability to envision something that didn't exist yet. Uh, and Rogers actually applied to teach at Harvard. So the, the irony, because Harvard ended up being furious that, that MIT started, and they were trying to shut it down uh, from before it began, which is when I found that, I knew this would be a fun book to write, uh, whenever you could use Harvard as an antagonist. Uh, but if they, had, if they had allowed him to teach at Harvard, he probably wouldn't have, have had the, the impetus to, to uh, create MIT, which he did have. He gathered around him some colleagues who had studied, um, especially in other, in other countries that were more geared to studying science, uh, for instance, France and Germany. And with them, he, he came up with the plan for the college, although getting that approved by uh, the Massachusetts State Legislature, for example, was an uphill battle. So has MIT then always had rivalry then with Harvard? Absolutely. In fact, rivalry uh, would probably apply today, but it would have been an understatement back then because uh, Harvard was, was so angry, really, about MIT. And, and there were several levels of that, one of which uh, really pivoted around the teaching of Darwinism because Louis Agassiz, who was the, the scientific guru at Harvard and probably the most influential scientist in the country at the time, was 
was dead set against any kind of acceptance of, Dar of Darwinian theory. And uh, that was one of the reasons he, he, was, he was so um, outraged by Rogers and MIT, because they embraced Darwinism. So there were, there were certain sort of institutional differences. There were also philosophical and ideological differences. Um, and MIT really represented a different direction that Harvard not only didn't embrace for themselves, but didn't approve of. You cast the uh, initial classes maybe also being viewed upon as being from a bit of a lower class, or the education wasn't as rigorous as that of, say, Harvard. Right. Well, it was it was a it was an entirely different structure. So I mentioned learning in laboratories. So this is one new idea, but also the absence of what would have been called a classical education. So studying Greek and Latin, ancient Greek and Latin, uh, was the base of of most colleges, including Harvard at the time. So the fact that that was entirely absent um, and replaced with with uh, laboratory learning and with things like French and German. Now, why would they be learning French and German? It seems sort of random. Well, to give you a flavor of how little scientific education was out there at the time in the United States, there were no textbooks in the English language for, for what you would have been studying at this level in terms of science. So the reason uh, that they would, they would learn some of those languages was that they, so they could try to translate some of the textbooks that existed in foreign countries. And by the way, England was even less advanced than the United States. Oxford and Cambridge still didn't have any scientific uh, education to speak of and wouldn't for many years. Sort of uh, funny how it's uh, come around as English is sort of the lingua franca of science uh, these days. Right, and so that's one of the fascinating things uh, that we see that that this is a point, uh, sort of a turning point, um, and we can actually sh you can sort of identify those origins. And that's as a storyteller, that's part of what made me very um, interested in this and excited to write the Technologist, my novel, because. Uh, it, you know, you, you get the sort of um, the characters as underdogs, which of course is, is any novelist's, uh, or not any novelist, but many novelists' uh, preference, because it's always fun writing about underdogs. And yet they have these, these skill sets and this knowledge that we know is very powerful, even if it was dismissed back then. So putting them in a position where they, they had to both fight the prejudiced and the ignorance about science, and, and particularly about this new college at MIT, uh, but they have they have this reserve of knowledge that they can that they can use to prove themselves. Uh, really, was um, besides being historically authentic, made for a very fun story to tell. Some mysteries that are happening, some technological type mysteries that are happening around Boston that could summarize the story and really how how you came up with it. Sure. Well, in, in this novel from page one, we see that there are these uh, very frightening events that are starting to happen around Boston. And uh, without giving too much away, these, these, are, uh, these are sort of technological attacks, what we might call terrorism, uh, terrorist attacks, but would, wouldn't have been called that back then. Uh, and for me, this, even though these are fictional parts of my novel, they dramatize, uh, I hope in a very authentic way, the fear of science because the, the, the as it, as it remains, science always evokes the question of how much it will add to our life versus how much it will take away from our our lives, our surroundings, our society. And that was so uh, so acute at the time that these disasters that, that I include in the book 
are sort of representative of what people fear from science. Now, I, I wanted all of the science to be grounded in the actual 19th century um, raw materials of science. So I, I was very careful because I didn't want, even though as a fiction writer I can, I, I sort of have license to do whatever I want, uh, I didn't want this to be steampunk, which is a genre I enjoy very much and which just refers to sort of importing modern science into a past time, usually Victorian 19th century era. Uh, I really wanted this to be, um, to, to show how powerful the science already was back then. And in a way, I think of this as science fiction, not science fiction the way, the way we normally use it, but fiction about science, uh, which at least in historical fiction really doesn't, you don't find very often. So it was, it was a challenge for me, and, and I hope it's, it's uh, something that, that occupies a special treat, especially for people like your listeners who, who have a, an investment uh, in, in science. And this is the time period that, and a setting that you've uh, visited previously in another book. I'm curious, is this just a time period you're fascinated with? Well, you know, part of what happens when you write novels uh, is that wherever your first novel takes you, and my first novel was called The Dante Club, and it was set in the 19th century. And I did that because it, it was right for the story. It wasn't a master plan. But that, it often happens that that first novel will, uh, will sort of carry over some of the themes and in this case settings. And so I have stuck with that 19th century, even though I didn't, I didn't have that specifically in mind. But you know, I found I enjoyed it so much that first time around and it was so rich. And I think part of it really is that so much of our modern, uh, society starts to become recognizable around the 19th century, around the Civil War, right after the Civil War. Um, and as I say, origins are something that I, I always love. Uh, I always love the idea of the first something. In fact, one of the earlier titles that I considered for the technologists was the first class until the X-Men stole that from me for one of their, their movies. But that, that idea of, of finding... Uh, of identifying uh, that the genesis of, of something that we're so familiar with, uh, as a writer, that really appeals to me. Perhaps also nicer to see things in their nascent stage, simpler form, easier to codify and deal with in, in a novel. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's you know, once you get into um, into the details of, of anything, even in the 19th century, it can get complicated. But I think that's right. I think. Things are, are so, uh, you know, often feel today that it's so hard to get a handle on, on any one subject, much less many subjects, because everything goes in so many different directions. So the 19th century definitely is a, a, a sort of more uh, graspable landscape, and, and sometimes that, that adds to your uh, ammunition for, for writing a novel, because you can, you can sort of occupy a larger scale in a way that, that, that still feels believable, and manageable. And, and you have commentary about present-day society through the lens of the past. I think that happens naturally. I actually try not to not to force that in. And in fact, that was one of the uh, one of the things that I actually thought helped me uh, not being an affiliate of MIT and writing a novel about the first uh, classes at MIT was that I had no I had no particular instinct to retrofit 
what we what what MIT is today to what it was in 1868. And I try to apply that across the board. So readers constantly will tell me, "Oh, this resonates with with what's going on today in in one way or the other." Um, and I think that's very legitimate. I, I usually try to 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 not force that because when you force that as a writer, as a novelist, sometimes that can end up feeling preachy, even if you don't mean to. Did, did the same apply to your portrayal of Harvard? Yeah, well, Harvard, you know, the funny thing is I didn't even plan on Harvard uh, being uh, in this novel. It was only once I started doing the research and saw what a what a uh, enormous, and uh, in, in the case of MIT, negative or hostile presence Harvard was that I that I fit in it, and I say it was fun for me because because I I went to Harvard. That that's that is my affiliation. So uh, it's a little fun to uh, see that side of that darker side of it. Uh, but yes, I, I certainly don't try to make any commentary on on the the place that Harvard occupies today. Although uh, you know, even in 1868, uh, when my novel takes place, Harvard was already 200 years old, more than 200 years old. So it's it's sort of just eternally the the uh, the the big uh, establishment <laughs> it sort of naturally represents that whenever whenever you look at it uh, so do you plan on continuing to write in the time period? Um, you know, uh, my guess is that as I write more and more books, however long that continues, the, the odds are that I'll, I'll stretch into different areas and different settings more and more, just like the technologist stretches into science and technology from literary history, where I started with my first three books. Uh, but for now, at least, I, you know, I am sticking with the ninth century for what will be my next book. And I think part of what happens is you, you get so immersed in it that your your next ideas when you're when you're finishing one novel and you're ready to think of what you want to write next it, it sort of naturally lends itself to thinking of something else in the 19th century because your brain has been stuck in there already. Uh, but I'm sure over the course of time, I, I, I'll get antsy and, and want to uh, either take breaks or, or go in a few different directions. Well, the book is really a, a fascinating uh, read and uh, a really a great read, and certainly hope people take a look at it. It is, again, called The Technologists, and the author is Mr. Matthew Pearl. Mr. Pearl, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks so much for having me. And you were just listening to Matthew Pearl discussing the, the technologists. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. If I can reach the stars, pull one down for you, shining on my heart, so you could see the truth. Love I have inside Is everything it seems But for now I find only in my dreams And I can change the world I will be the sunlight
It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, a technological marvel or just a garage sale gadget. So for the following five items, the uh, Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're a technological marvel or a garage sale gadget and maybe a little reason why. Mr. Pearl, ready to play the game? I think so. Okay. All right. Uh, item number one, technological marvel, garage sale gadget. It's the new iPad. I would say technological marvel, but I've never touched one, so it's that's my fantasy of it. Well, they're certainly promoting it as such, so. You're right. So it works, at least on me. <laughs> All right. Uh, number two, it's uh, the George Foreman Grill. You know, I used to have one, so I'm going to have to say a garage sale gadget because I think I only used it for a couple weeks. All right. Uh, number three, it's uh, the Ronco Electric Food Dehydrator. Wow. Well, I don't actually – well, I, I guess I can picture what that is. I don't know it offhand, but um, it sounds really Jetsons-like, so I'll give it the benefit of the doubt and say that there's a technological marvel somewhere in there. Okay. Uh, number four, it's uh, modern-day cell phones. Oh, well, my wife would say garage sale gadget. She is one of the last holdouts, but I'm attached to mine, so I'll have to say technological marvel since it's changed my life. I don't know, for better or worse. <laughs> I think we're stuck with them uh, regardless. Yeah. Okay, and finally, number five, uh, technological marvel or garage sale gadget, it's electronic voting machines. Uh, well, I have. they don't have them in my area, so I haven't used one yet. But I understand there's lots of problems with it. Still, I think eventually that'll be the way to go. Uh, so I'll, I'll go with technological marvel on that one. Certainly can't have any hanging chad problems with those. Right, <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm, I grew up in Florida, so that was embarrassing. So hopefully it'll avoid that. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, Mr. Pearl, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing the game and again talking about uh, your great new novel, uh, The Technologist. Thank you so much for your time. Great. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.